the beginnings of revolutionary political action in the United States of America. Selected reading from the Communist, the former theoretical organ of the Communist Party USA, and the current theoretical organ of the Party of Communists USA. Beginnings of Revolutionary Political Action in the United States of America by Vern Smith, October 1933 Working class political theory in the United States was backward throughout the last century for the same reason that labor organization here lagged behind that of Europe. The will-o'-the-wisp of the frontier, cheap land, danced ever westward, drawing after it the rebels. Labor fought a continuous rearguard action in the settled communities, always with an eye toward the easy path of retreat to more primitive communities. Even when the leaders did not actually run away to become farmers, the influence of the frontier farming communities was upon them and on all politics, producing a unique, tangled morass of theories. Utopian socialism, imported from Europe but thoroughly naturalized, had a tremendous vogue in the first half of the 19th century. Later, Greensbackism, cheap paper money theories, and populism, anti-monopoly theories, drew far more votes than any proletarian class struggle doctrine. The native working-class political movement, which grew out of the unions in a healthy enough way, was continually being enticed towards some currency tinkering or colonization panacea. The movement lived in the midst of a whole nation of farmers. It was always affected by the crude, frontier, Jacksonian democracy. Even after the Civil War, when Northern capitalism took sharp control of national affairs, and the frontier began to dwindle, this habit of thought persisted. Utopianism The utopian socialist movement, colonization schemes, reached its height before the Civil War. The labor movement didn't shake it off entirely until after Job Harriman's new Lano of a few years ago. In fact, we still have Brookwood and Commonwealth College as a kind of vermiform appendix of the utopian period. The cheap money trend in labor politics rose to a climax in 1888, when it won, under the National Greenback Labor Party, a whole list of the city, state, and even national offices, and swept all through the 1870s and the 1880s a host of local labor parties into its stream, only finally to lead most of them into the Republican or Democratic parties. Populism The populist, so-called bust the trusts, anti-monopoly movement, did the same to the continual mushroom growths of local labor parties for a few years after the collapse of the greenback movement only to run into Bryan democracy in the middle of the 1890s and merge with it. Populism was a reformist party, with many of the demands of the labor unions, shorter hours, factory inspection, better schools, etc. Single tax, 
The period of 1886 to 1888 saw the rise of the fetish of single tax. It began as a labor reform party, quote-unquote progressive democracy it was called, at the height of its influence. Its candidate and chief theoretician, Henry George, just barely missed being elected mayor of New York in 1886. George got 68,000 votes. Hewitt, a Tammany, got 90,000. And Theodore Roosevelt, a Republican, got 60,000. During the first year, even the socialist leaders held out illusions about the quote-unquote partial socialism of the Henry George campaign. Coupled with the single tax demand were demands for no police interference with workers' meetings, right of workers to serve on grand juries, factory inspection, and sanitary laws, abolition of contract labor, equal pay for women, government ownership of railways and telegraphs, etc. Usual demands of labor at that period. But George himself rebuffed the labor movement, declaring he did not want to lead a quote-unquote class movement, and the socialists finally reoriented themselves and began to attack the single-tax philosophy as false. The single-tax movement quickly became a doctrinaire sect, which it still remains today. Now, these foregoing movements were all Native American, the natural expressions of a class of workers who had been or expected to be farmers or small employers, or they were the combined movements of workers and poor farmers, with the farmers rather in the lead, and they were movements in a period of the shifting frontier and the beginnings of big capitalism. Undoubtedly, a true revolutionary working-class political party could have eventually arisen from among them. There was always a minority of scattered individuals entangled in these confusing native and naive political organizations who looked to the left. But the revolutionary theory of Europe was throughout so far in advance. The working classes of Europe, in the absence of the frontier, so much more crystallized and class conscious, that socialist theory, developed first in Europe, was imported into the United States. Marxism in America The Marxians came over about the time of the Civil War and made the beginnings of revolutionary politics in America. And for years, the history of these movements is one of small groups with a Marxian political theory far in advance of the confused ideas of the American masses, and with no one during that time knowing how to build bridges from the masses to the vanguard. This bridge building is even yet, after Marx and after Lenin, still not sufficiently well understood by the revolutionists here. German Membership Let us take a look at this history. Sections, or branches, of the International Working Men's Association, the first international, were formed in the larger cities of the United States immediately after its organization in London in 1864. For years, its membership in America was composed almost entirely of German immigrants, and later, 
radical French workers driven over here by the persecutions following the smashing of the Commune of Paris. Clear up to 1876, it was torn by factional struggles, not so much between Marxists and Bakuninists as in Europe, as between Marxians demanding labor union organization and political action, and the Lasallians, who sneered at unions and demanded entire concentration on parliamentarism for the purpose of winning state support for cooperative ventures. Of course, the Lasallians could draw on the generally common utopian and colonization ideas of the American workers. In 1871, the First International had eight sections and only 293 members in the United States of America. The First Split Section 12, the only one largely American in membership, finally had to be expelled after much quarreling with Sorge, and after appeals to the General Council, the center in Europe. Section 12 won over 12 other small sections. The First International was growing, and launched the American Confederation of the International in Philadelphia in 1872. The General Council, which meant the international headquarters of the First International, was moved to New York in 1872, and Sorge became the recognized leader here. In 1873, a new struggle broke out, which seems at first sight to have been mere unprincipled factionalism, at least the political trends are hard to see, between the four other sections in New York and Section 1 of New York, the largest and oldest. The four rebellious sections gathered a couple more around them, but just before and at the First International Convention of 1874, their opposition was badly defeated, and several sections were expelled. The membership then was about 1,000. Gompersism makes its mark. The leader of this rebellion against Section 1 and the First International Headquarters was one Adolf Strasser, best known in the American labor movement as the co-worker of Samuel Gompers, when both were officials in the Cigar Makers International Union, just a few years after the split in the First International. Strasser worked out with Gompers the essentials of the philosophy known as Gompersism, high union dues, centralization of finances and power, struggle only for severely limited demands, and no struggle at all if possible, conformity with the capitalist system, craft unionism as against industrial, and skillful and unprincipled demagogy. That gives one clue to the nature of the factionalism in the First International. The fact that the splitters were in those sections with the greatest number of English-speaking members gives another. It was primarily a split between the revolutionary vanguard and a group drifting towards the non-revolutionary masses. Relief and No Evictions The most important action by the international in this period was the leading of demonstrations of tens of thousands of unemployed in New York and Chicago, 1873. The demonstrations were mobilized around the following slogans worked out by the First International 
Federal Council in New York as advised to the Unemployed Central Committee. They were, quote, employment on public works at customary wages, end quote, quote, one week's relief either in food or money for needy cases, end quote, end quote, no eviction of the unemployed for non-payment of rent, end quote. The New York police set a precedent that lasted right down to and including this present crisis. The police made a merciless assault with clubs and guns on the demonstrators in Tompkins Square. Hundreds were injured. In 1874, Section 1 seized the official organ of the International as a result of attempts by Sorge to put a little more revolutionary vigor into it, and in the course of the resistance to Sorge by both the editors and Section 1. The General Council of the First International suspended Section 1, which then sued in the capitalist courts and got control of the paper. But the paper died two months later, and two years later, the International was dead too, shattered by these and other lesser factional splits. The First International was formally dissolved at its last convention in Philadelphia. The seed it sowed, however, did not die out. Those who got their training in the First International developed, in after years, a Marxian core in the labor movement, and eventually it became a revolutionary left wing. Social Democratic Party The group led by Strasser continued its existence, held a convention in May 1874, and with a number of smaller labor groups, mostly Lasallian, formed the Social Democratic Party of North America. It is one more confusing thing that Strasser, the trade unionist, could take in these Lasallian factions, but Lasalle's theories were about played out. After the Chicago unemployed demonstration of 1873, the Labor Party of Illinois was formed, Lasallian, but including a small Marxian group established by Guedemeyer before the Civil War and captured later by the Lasallians. By 1874, the combined groups had swung back toward at least the Marxian tenet which calls for the organization of labor unions. Other local labor parties grew up. There was a general propaganda for unions, for the eight-hour day, for more public schools, against the use of militia in strikes. Conventions of 1876 it was in 1875 to 1877 that the Greenback agitation was strong. One of the Greenback groups, a secret society calling itself the, quote, Junior Sons of 76, end quote, was organized in Pittsburgh, May 4th, 1874. It was composed largely of workers. Its program was cheap paper money, referendum and recall, no militia in strike struggles. It was for independent political action. It invited all labor and reformist organizations in the country to meet in national convention in Tyrone, Pennsylvania, December 28, 1875. Among others, 
the Social Democratic Party of North America accepted this invitation. The convention did little aside from calling another to meet in Pittsburgh April 17, 1876. The Pittsburgh Convention was controlled by the Knights of Labor and the Greenback delegates, but there were represented the First International, whose membership was now down to 635, the Labor Party of Illinois, 593 members, the Social Democratic Party of North America, 1,500 members, and the Social Political Workingmen's Society of Cincinnati, 250 members. Otto Wiedemeyer presented the program of 21 socialist delegates, abolition of wage slavery as the goal, international affiliation to check the importation of European strike breakers, organization of unions as the first task, independent political action, but not until the movement was strong enough. This last was generally interpreted as meaning not until a number of unions endorsed it. The Greenback majority brushed aside the socialist program and made paper money and high tariff the main demands. The socialists bolted the convention. The convention then lost its nerve, adopted meaningless resolutions, and adjourned. But before the delegates from the four socialist parties left Pittsburgh, they held a joint caucus, adopted quote-unquote articles of fusion, and appointed a temporary joint central committee, then called their own national convention to meet July 19, 1876, in Philadelphia. Parent of the Socialist Labor Party The July conference was attended by Sorge and Wiedemeyer of the First International, Strasser from the Social Democrats, and delegates from the other two parties. All these parties merged then and there under the name of the Workingmen's Party of the United States, with a platform calling for abolition of capitalism, for immediate demands, for formation of unions, and for participation as an independent political party in elections, quote, wherever the situation is favorable, end quote. The First International now vanishes, and from this, Workingmen's Party, the socialist and communist parties of today descended in a direct line. The Workingmen's Party established national headquarters at Chicago, but changed it almost every year thereafter. The party had three papers to begin with, of which the main one, in English, was The Socialist. Its name temporarily was changed to Labor Standard. The Workingmen's Party plunged into the elections. Its candidate, Albert R. Parsons, got a sixth of the votes for aldermen in the 15th Ward in Chicago in 1877. It elected some city officials in Milwaukee, the German population, that same year. It fell down miserably in its duty to the heroic 1877 railroad strikers. The Socialist Labor Party appears. The party's 1877 convention in Newark, New Jersey, changed the name to Socialist Labor Party and moved the headquarters to Cincinnati, where the official organ in English, the National Socialist, was also established. At the Newark convention, there were reported 72 sections, 
with 7,000 members and 21 papers, of which two German language papers were dailies. Rapid growth followed, and considerable gains in vote, especially where there were close connections with the unions, as in Chicago. The socialist vote in Chicago was 11,800 in 1879, with four socialist aldermen elected. The program of the party, as shown in its platform during these years, declares, quote, Labor, being the source of all wealth and civilization and useful labor, being possible only by and through the associated efforts of the people, the means of labor should therefore in justice belong to society, end quote which may be taken as a somewhat free interpretation of Marxism, but still a revolutionary doctrine. It goes on, without using the word capitalist to describe capitalist exploitation, it declares the ruling political parties to be the instruments of the dominant or wealthy classes, and calls on the working people to organize themselves into one great labor party, using political power to achieve industrial independence. It urges international affiliation, does not say to what, there was no international at that time. It calls for labor unions, but prescribes no strategy or tactics or form of organization, nor does it mention those then existing, either in praise or blame. Then it says, quote, we demand that the resources of life, the means of production, public transportation and communication, land, machinery, railroads, telegraph lines, canals, etc., become as fast as practicable the common property of the whole people through the government. End quote. It is clear they were not syndicalists, but probably some of them were state capitalists. It proposes to, quote, abolish the wages system and substitute instead cooperative production with a just distribution of its rewards, end quote. For gradual revolution? Then follows this curious passage, quote, the Socialistic Labor Party presents the following demands as measures to ameliorate the condition of the working people under our present competitive system, and to gradually accomplish the entire removal of the same." End quote. This is the only official indication of the tactics they meant to use in abolishing capitalism, and the demands, which were all right in themselves, and were those of the organized trade union movement of the time, would hardly abolish capitalism, gradually or otherwise. They were the eight-hour day, sanitary and factory inspection, the establishment of state and national bureaus of labor statistics, no convict labor contracted out to private persons or firms, 14-year age limit for child labor, compulsory education and free textbooks, accident compensation, wages paid in money and weekly, right to organize and strike, gratuitous administration of justice in all courts of law, abolition of indirect taxation and subordination of a graduated income tax, government banking and insurance, 
no limitation on suffrage. Initiative, referendum, recall, and proportional representation. White Chauvinism No mention whatever appears in this platform, or in the party press, of black people, who were then just being finally reconquered as slaves by the first Ku Klux Klan counter-revolution in the South. In fact, black people were absolutely forgotten by the socialist movement from the end of the First International to the founding of the Third International, or the Common Term. Perhaps worse than this omission is a sin of commission. The Newark Convention of 1877 of the Socialist Labor Party adopted a resolution denouncing Chinese labor at the moment the slaughter of Chinese was being prepared in California. The Socialist United States of America Such a program as that of the Socialist Labor Party is at best, because of its looseness of language, capable of being made in practice either much better or much worse. The official organs and speakers of the party made it worse. Take, for example, the very first issue of The National Socialist, carrying the arm and hammer emblem, published May 4, 1878. An article begins, quote, A political democracy, such as the United States, is just as much a variety of socialism as social democracy is. Indeed, the latter means nothing more than a complete development of the former. End quote. The leaders were not labor racketeers. That was left for a later period in the history of the Socialist Party. The receipts of the Socialist Labor Party National Office from August 7th to September 22nd, 1878, were $101. There were only two salaried officials, wages $6 per week each. Most of the money was spent on printing leaflets and pamphlets. The Socialist Labor Party was anti-prohibition. Many of the native movements had been pro-prohibition. The Socialist Labor Party was anti-imperialist, if imperialism was far enough away. In this 1878 period, the Socialist Labor Party followed carefully in its press the War of the Zulus in Africa against the conquest by the British, but it didn't mention black people in the United States. Pledges Never to Revolt It was vigorously parliamentarian and terribly afraid of being, quote, accused of the excesses of the Paris Commune, end quote. The Socialist Labor Party has not budged from this doctrine to this day. Since Bernstein, the present Socialist Party, the child of the Socialist Labor Party, no longer believes in the inevitable downfall or in the overthrow of capitalism, but it is just as emphatic against force as a means of revolution. It has, however, used force to prevent revolution. Workers waking up. But now we reach the period of big labor struggles, 1877 to about 1893, and we can no longer speak just of a morass with the shadow of the frontier creeping over it. The morass is there. Populism, Bryanism, progressive parties, etc. are ahead. 
But from now on, there was also a militant section of American workers, forging ahead of the other workers, and at periods forging far ahead of the official revolutionary movement of their time. Such a period is this of the 1880s. It started in Chicago. The Chicago workers had been suffering terrifically from police brutality, and the leadership, still being German, a Lehr- und Werferheim, Educational and Protective Association, had been organized in 1875 to defend workers going to the polls in elections. It extended its duties to strikes. It was after a while transformed into an armed defense corps, and it did good work. The Chicago sections of the Socialist Labor Party supported it. So did the unions. The membership was drawn from both. The Socialist Labor Party national leadership cast a fishy eye upon it. They were, or pretended to be, afraid it was a bid for violent revolution. The Lehr und Werferheim was only trying, in the beginning, to do just what the Socialist Labor Party declared was justifiable. But the direct attack on it forced it further along. Still more resentment and still more extremism came in Chicago when the National Executive Committee of the Socialist Labor Party on June 13, 1878, without permitting any defense, officially repudiated the Lehr und Werferheim and, quote, all socialist military societies, end quote. The Socialist Labor Party, had it said that this was not the time for a violent revolution, would have been correct. But when it repudiated all revolution as a matter of principle, and while officially pretending to approve the right of self-defense, actually ruled out that right in the case at issue, the Chicago membership went wild. Parsons, a pronounced parliamentarian, so far, began to really consider anarchism. Other Chicago leaders did the same. The Chicago Anarchists The Chicago Anarchists became more and more extreme in the course of their reaction against the sickening legalism of the Socialist Labor Party, until they actually believed themselves that if the right word were given, a violent revolution was possible at that time. They were desperately sincere and marvelously heroic. Here is no space to go into the details of their leadership of struggles, of their agitation which resulted in the eight-hour general strike movement of 1886-1900, to though the AFL stole the credit, nor the horrible terror and frame-up and executions by which the Chicago anarchists were crushed. All we can say here is that the Chicago anarchists were the finest product so far of the socialist movement since the days of Sorge, and that the official Socialist Labor Party shows up very badly in comparison. It had much to do with driving the Chicago anarchists into their forlorn hope, and it betrayed them in treacherous, cowardly fashion when they were facing the gallows. The Socialist Labor Party survived the anarchist split and continued to grow slowly. Daniel DeLeon after a brief revival of Lasallianism in the Socialist Labor Party in 1889, that faction was overthrown and disappears into history. 
At this time, Daniel de Leon and his chief lieutenant, Lucien Sanyo, came to the front and remained the leaders of the Socialist Labor Party until de Leon died a quarter of a century later. The party platform was rewritten by Sanyo, with all references to state support for cooperatives cut out, and with the whole thing modeled in language of the Declaration of Independence. Outside of these changes, the platform remained essentially the same. The 1889 platform of the Socialist Labor Party begins, quote, The Socialist Labor Party, in convention assembled, reasserts the inalienable right of men to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote, and goes on to say, quote, With the founders of this government, we hold that the purpose of government is to secure every citizen in the enjoyment of this right. But in the light of our social conditions, we hold, furthermore, that no such right can be exercised under a system of economic inequality. With the founders of this republic, we hold that the true theory of politics is that the machinery of government must be owned and controlled by the whole people. But in the light of our industrial development, we hold furthermore that the true theory of economics is that the machinery of production must likewise belong to the people in common. To the obvious fact that our despotic system of economics is the direct opposite of our democratic system of politics can plainly be traced the existence of a privileged class, the corruption in government by that class, the alienation of public property, public franchises, and public functions to that class, and the abject dependence of the mightiest of nations upon that class." End quote. Waited for the collapse. The fatalistic attitude toward the downfall of capitalism remained. Quote, the time is fast coming, however, when in the natural course of social evolution, this system, through the destructive action of its failures and crises on the one hand, and the constructive tendencies of its trusts and other capitalistic combinations on the other hand, shall have worked out its downfall. End quote. They viewed it as a mechanical process, without much action, by the proletariat. Many of their speakers frankly admitted that they were organizing the workers merely to prevent anarchy after the collapse of capitalism. But the party platform called the workers to, quote, enroll under the banner of the Socialist Labor Party, so that held together by an indomitable spirit of solidarity under the most trying conditions of the present class struggle, we may put a summary end to that barbarous struggle by the abolition of classes and the substitution of the cooperative commonwealth for the present state of planless production, industrial war, and social disorder, end quote, etc. The Socialist Labor Party officially aided in the launching of the Henry George movement, then withdrew. Large sections split away and went into populism. Others were lost to the short-lived National Union Labor Party of 1877, which got 25,000 votes in Chicago against a Republican-Democratic fusion which got 50,000 votes. 
Powerful Influence in American Federation of Labor In the American Federation of Labor Convention of 1892, Socialist Labor Party delegates nearly won a favorable recommendation from the convention to the international unions of a plan for a labor party. The word quote-unquote favorable was withdrawn only at the last minute. A curious blindness and some cowardice were evident in the reaction of the Socialist Labor Party to the war with Spain, April 20th to August 12th, 1898. This was a war of American imperialism, to loot from Spain her colonies. Like most imperialist wars, it was waged under the most high-sounding demagogic excuses. The particular excuse in this case was, quote, free the oppressed Cubans, end quote. How not to oppose a war? The Socialist Labor Party swallowed the imperialist propaganda, never once realized that it was an imperialist war, opposed it very mildly on pacifist grounds, and waged the bulk of its struggle against graft mismanagement of military affairs, and against injustice to the workers who had to live under war conditions. The particular injustice that the Socialist Labor Party concentrated its fire upon was conscription, and that turned out to be a sham battle, because conscription was not needed at all by American capitalism during the Spanish War. From the beginning, they had more volunteers then could be drilled and moved to the front. Now the Socialist Labor Party was so careful to avoid any shock to patriotic sentiment, which most of the members themselves felt in full measure, that it actually assisted in whooping up national chauvinism. While the party centered its quote-unquote anti-militarist activity around the fake issue of conscription, it used language that actually stimulated volunteer recruiting. Here is a sample, one of the many from platforms and resolutions adopted by state and city conventions of the Socialist Labor Party during the war. This is from the platform adopted at the Iowa State Convention of the Socialist Labor Party. Quote, We view with admiration the ardent spirit of humanity which has impelled the workingmen of this country to offer their lives and services to politically emancipate the suffering Cubans from the barbarous oppression of the Kingdom of Spain. And we extend the sympathies of American workingmen to the oppressed Cubans and Spanish workers who are trying to overthrow the hateful despotism which is destroying them. Fellow workers, the capitalist class, which is the enemy of oppressed Cuban and Spanish workers, is our enemy. End quote. Here follows a list of charges of graft and profiteering in the conduct of the war. Then the platform continues, quote, We recognize that the patriotism of the workers is enthusiasm for humanity, while the patriotism of the capitalist is enthusiasm for profits. We heartily commend the self-sacrifice of the former and condemn the self-seeking of the latter, end quote. Then, Quote, we demand that in case conscription becomes necessary to keep the army up to war standard, that the conscripts be drawn from the ranks of property owners, 
end quote. There follows a specific plan for the percentage of conscripts from each type of property owner, and a demand that they be not permitted to purchase substitutes. A new factional struggle developed in the Socialist Labor Party toward the end of the 19th century. That struggle was the origin of the present Socialist Party USA. War on the American Federation of Labor Daniel de Leon, who had become the czar of the Socialist Party, split with the remnants of the Knights of Labor in a quarrel over the editorship of the Knights of Labor official journal. A clique he helped to power in the Knights of Labor promised to make Samuel editor and then double-crossed him, and in 1895 refused to seat de Leon in the Knights of Labor convention. A Socialist Labor Party row with the American Federation of Labor centered around the right of local bodies of the Socialist Labor Party to affiliate with the American Federation of Labor city central bodies. In 1895, de Leon put through his decision for an independent socialist union movement, and the Socialist Trades and Labor Alliance was launched. It grew to some 20,000 members, and then started to decline. It really was too soon to put much emphasis on independent unions. The masses were in the American Federation of Labor, and the bureaucracy was not so firmly entrenched that it could not be unseated. An intelligent opposition movement within the American Federation of Labor was the proper place for the main emphasis. Independent unions, even a socialist trades and labor alliance, might well have been useful as an auxiliary force and could have cooperated with the left wing inside the American Federation of Labor. But at that time, and even down to 1927, no one could see this. It was always, quote-unquote, either-or. If you were for, quote-unquote, boring from within, then you were against any sort of independent or dual unions, and vice versa. The Struggle Over Dual Unionism The opposition to de Leon's dual unionism began at once in the sections of the Socialist Labor Party. News of the struggle was kept out of the official party press, and published reports as long as possible. Expulsions, however, were commonplace. The de Leonites had a certain amount of justice in their argument that the opposition to dual unionism was not an honest one. The argument of the quote-unquote rebels in the Socialist Labor Party was always in the form of a demand for the right to fight the quote-unquote labor fakers from within the American Federation of Labor. De Leon had plenty of evidence that the right most of these quote-unquote rebels really wanted was the right to surrender to the labor fakers, to make alliance with them, to become part of the bureaucracy of the American Federation of Labor. In general, it was one more case of a quote-unquote practical, mostly native-born group hunting around for the morass. De Leon had led them into a desert of sectarianism and isolation, and they preferred the swamp of revisionism and degeneration. Nobody until the beginning of the left-wing movement in the Socialist Party in the following century could see any but these two alternatives. 
a coup d'etat. The leaders of the rebellion against De Leon were practical enough to pierce a weak spot in his organizational apparatus. The constitution of the Socialist Labor Party had some hangovers from a more primitive time when communications were bad. It provided that the national leadership should be elected by the section in the city where the headquarters was located. The headquarters were in New York. The insurgents controlled the section known as Greater New York, which did not include Richmond, Williamsburg, and various other portions of what had come to be considered Greater New York, geographically. These outlying portions of the city were pro-De Leon, and he relied on them for his political control of the Socialist Labor Party in New York. The Socialist Labor Party section, quote-unquote, Greater New York, controlled by the anti-De Leon faction, disregarded the outlying territories of Greater New York, met, elected a new leadership, and seized all the headquarters property it could get a hold of. The insurgents, having most of the membership with them, met in national convention in Rochester, and, still calling themselves the Socialist Labor Party, repudiated the Socialist Trades and Labor Alliance and all it stood for. For a couple of years then, there were two Socialist Labor Parties, each claiming to be the real one. There were also other Socialist Parties. The most important of these was Eugene V. Debs's Social Democracy of America. It grew to about 5,000 members in the Midwest, and had the support of Charles H. Kerr and Company, for 25 years later the main publishers of socialist classics in America. The famous and influential International Socialist Review started publication in this period as a supporter of Debs, and after the fusion of Debs's party and the Socialist Labor Party insurgents in 1901, this magazine became the best of the left-wing socialist publications. Colonization again. Quote-unquote social democracy was Eugene V. Debs's favorite child, born out of a fusion of small socialist groups on June 7, 1898, after the Buffalo Switchmen's and Pullman strikes had wakened him to the need of political action. Social democracy had all of Debs's energy, warm-heartedness, class feeling, and heroism, but also all his sentimentality were expressed in it. Social Democracy's Declaration of Principles, as it appears in his paper, The Social Democrat, is a repetition word for word of the Samuel quote-unquote Declaration of Independence platform of the Socialist Labor Party, with, of course, changes in the name of the organization. Socialist Party The Socialist Labor Party insurgents and Debs opened negotiations looking toward unity along in 1900, and a unity convention of the two parties met, July 29, 1901, at Indianapolis, with 124 delegates, representing 10,000 members of both parties. The result was a merger, forming the Socialist Party of the United States, the present Socialist Party. It had a program loose enough to include both revolutionists like Debs and the quote, small traders, 
usurious moneylenders, and pure and simple corruptionists, end quote, whom De Leon had berated. On the whole, it was one more step into the morass. It so devitalized the revolutionary theory of socialism as to become in practice just another reform party. Spargo, William English Walling, Russell, came forward with an interpretation of socialism that was worse than anything Bernstein thought of in Europe. Popular socialist orators emphasized that socialism was, quote, nothing but government ownership, end quote. The further history of working-class politics in America is chiefly that of the development of a left-wing, this time more than ever before, a left-wing based on American conditions, and a revolutionary left-wing, too, for these conditions were no longer very different from those of Europe. It was a left-wing that came into sharpest conflict with the reformist socialists during the war period, a left-wing that advanced towards Bolshevism, while the right wing went from reformism to social fascism. Thank you for listening to this reading from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Instagram. Join us on Discord. Support us at newoutlookpublishers.net and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes.